Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, Welcome back, Ken. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good start to 2024 here with some Serious Trouble. Why don't we start in Washington, D.C., where the federal trial of Donald Trump for actions leading up to January 6th is sort of on pause. Uh, The former president filed an appeal saying, I am immune from prosecution over these charges because the acts that are at issue here were conducted within the outer perimeter of my responsibilities in office as president. And because he's asserting not just a right not to be convicted, but a right not to be tried, this is an issue that's getting taken up immediately by the appeals courts. And the appeals court in Washington, D.C. has been quite expeditious, had them briefing this over the holiday. There were briefs filed just yesterday on January 2. There were briefs filed on December 30th. What's the status of these arguments over whether this trial can actually proceed? Well, so oral argument is set for next week, next Tuesday. Uh, the matter is completely briefed now, and so we see the contours of Trump's argument and, and Jack Smith's response. And since we last talked, uh, the Supreme Court, as predicted, refused to take this issue up on an expedited review. Uh, and I think they did so because the D.C. Circuit was handling it so uh, expeditiously, there was really no point in them doing so. That doesn't rule out them looking at it after the D.C. Circuit decides, but for now, they're not going to take it out of order. So we now see what the arguments are. And Trump's arguments for immunity are generally not getting good reviews Mm -hmm. among law professors and, and legal professionals. They seem kind of expansive. Trump's argument is more or less that, you know, President, uh, or former president can't be prosecuted for something they did as president. One of his arguments is that, well, you know that because it's never happened to a president. He's <laughs> never been prosecuted, a former president. There haven't uh, been that many presidents. Well, like the, uh, well, the end here is not that large. <clears throat> that's I don't know true. what Grover Cleveland was up to after office and whether there were charges declined that maybe should have been brought. But it's it's hard to see the obvious cases where you would necessarily have expected this these sorts of charges to be brought. Well, I, I disagree. I think that Nixon is the obvious case where charges could have well, been he was brought. Pardoned. And exactly. And the fact that he was pardoned tends to undermine the argument uh, that history shows that a president can't be prosecuted because why did Gerald Ford have to pardon him if he couldn't be prosecuted uh, for what he did while in office? So Jack Smith has responded the uh, Typical, yeah, everything that guy said is bullshit. Uh, There's no historical precedent for it. There's no legal precedent for it. It makes the president above the law in a way that's very against American legal tradition. He also points out that, interestingly, Trump has made some inconsistent arguments over the years, hardly surprising given the number of litigations he's been in. But he's in the past when he was president and he was trying to shut down or delay some of the legal proceedings, he said... You know, this shouldn't go on now, and it's fine because these sorts of things can happen after the president leaves office. (laughs) And now that he left office, he turns around and said these can never happen. So, you know, that's the hazard of being so frequently in litigation. It's easy to get tangled up in your own arguments. Does that matter? I mean, one of the things in, in litigation, right, is you're allowed to offer multiple arguments. They don't all have to be consistent with each other. It can be, you know, well, this and then, but if not that, also this. Is there anything necessarily improper about arguing different sides of issues when you're in different litigation situations? Generally, no. You you can't usually flip your argument in the same litigation. And there can be instances where 
if you're talking about the same litigants where you can be bound by your prior position in another litigation, but it's persuasive. Jack Smith's message isn't that this position binds Trump. Uh, his position is, you know, the reason that this argument is BS is that he's made the opposite argument before. I see. And this is why not to take it seriously. And so oral argument coming up next week, when are we likely to have a ruling in this case? Given the speed with which uh, they're doing things, I would be surprised if they don't rule within a couple of weeks. And so then Trump, obviously, assuming that the ruling is unfavorable to him, will appeal. And then I guess he has two options, right? He can seek an end bank rehearing. Uh, he can also seek review by the Supreme Court. What's the timeline likely to look like as he, you know, as he uses every tool that he has to extend this appeal process as long as he can? Well, it really depends on how cooperative the courts are. So the D.C. Circuit has been extremely cooperative in expediting this. And in theory, uh, if he wanted to ask for hearing by the full court, he could, and they'd probably expedite that as well, either refusing very quickly or setting it up very quickly. I don't know that he'll try that simply because I don't think it's a very favorable forum for him. Not a lot of D.C. judges with a few exceptions who are going to be sympathetic to these arguments. Well, but is he trying to get a favorable ruling or is he trying to run out the clock? I mean, we've already talked about how it's likely that the, the start of this case is going to get pushed back to some time in the summer. If he can achieve substantial more delay, he, he might succeed in pushing this trial past the election, which I think is a key objective for him. That's part of the objective, but the, the D.C. Circuit so far isn't cooperating and giving him a lot of delay. Right. It remains to be seen whether the Supreme Court would and on what schedule they'd take it up and, and that type of thing, if they agree to take it up. And I think that depends largely on what the D.C. Circuit says. If the D.C. Circuit says something sensible and not overreaching, then I'm not sure that Trump has the votes on the Supreme Court uh, for it to be taken up. And so when in terms of sensible and not overreaching, I can imagine a, a ruling favorable to Trump that would be very controversial and the court might take up. Is there a way to rule for the government that would be likely to bother the Supreme Court enough that they they would say, well, that was too broad, whatever it is you did? Yeah, I think that you could make some extremely broad pronouncement that's an extremely broad limitation of presidential power, of executive power, as opposed to one really limited to the facts here, one that says that here the allegations are of conduct that's outside the outer limits or whatever it is, it doesn't really purport to change any legal doctrine, but simply apply existing legal doctrine here. That would be the more judicially conservative approach that's less likely to draw a Supreme Court review. Because my sense with the Supreme Court is that when Trump was president, they sort of felt the need to weigh in directly on a lot of this stuff. And that since he left office, their approach has been much more like it is with normal litigation, where it's, you know, only if the set of issues is of, you know, particularly great importance or of, you know, the, you know, there's a split among the circuits and that sort of thing. And so to your point about it's not clear the court would take this up, it, it strikes me that if, if they did that sort of limited thing, I don't see why it would meet the sort of criteria where the court would say, we, we really need to touch this case. I agree. And I think that, again, that the Supreme Court declining cert uh, is a more, again, judicially conservative thing to do, not to take it up, not to reach it, not to get involved in the political angle. And I think the D.C. Circuit is probably one where they know how to write an opinion that's not overreaching and that it's largely limited to the particular facts. And so could we be done with that whole process by the end of this month? Well, I doubt we would be done with the process of 
seeking cert and having the Supreme Court decide whether or not to accept cert. But I think we could definitely and probably will be done in the D.C. Circuit. And then can the case proceed while the Supreme Court is considering whether to grant cert or is it or is it still paused in that circumstance? Generally, the answer is that when you have issues that can be immediately appealed uh, like this or like qualified immunity, the direct appeal does stay it. But the um, seeking cert does not unless you get a stay from the Supreme Court or from the courts that you're dealing with. They give you one specially. Okay, so is all of that to say that this this case may well be back in Tanya Shukin's hands within two weeks from now, two to three weeks from now, and and then the clock will be running again on the case? I would say more like February, but yes, I think okay. that's definitely possible. Okay. There was also an interesting story in Rolling Stone that I know you spoke with the, the reporters for about Trump's intentions for this trial, if and when it actually proceeds to trial, and the ways in which he hopes to make it into a circus and basically wants to litigate all this stuff about January 6th itself and, you know, was it really the deep state and did Nancy Pelosi cause all of these problems, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was interesting in terms of a window into Trump's psyche and what they're thinking about in terms of what their PR objectives are for this trial. One thing that I'd like more clarity on is what they can actually do in these departments. I mean, you know, you can have all sorts of things you want to do and people that you want to subpoena to appear in your trial. To what extent, if Trump wants to make this into a broader political argument, will he actually be able to do so in Tanya Chutkin's courtroom? I think to a very limited extent. So I I enjoyed this Rolling Stone story, but I I found it simultaneously horrifying and not particularly surprising. So we've known that Trump is like the chaos agent, and then he approaches litigation like a chaos agent for for years. Uh, And he he does everything just like he's done in the... uh, the New York State AG trial, uh, trying to do everything as, uh, you know, overturn chairs and yell and and basically make things into a circus. So it's it's little surprise that's his instinct here. Federal judges are really not into that type of thing. Uh, they're much less likely to uh, tolerate it than state judges. And federal prosecutors in particular tend to be very attuned to the defense trying this sort of thing and heading it off with appropriate motions. And like you say, uh, we've seen this already in a motion by Jack Smith seeking to keep out argument and evidence about selective prosecution. They're singling me out for political reasons, which generally is not an issue for the jury, but an issue for the judge. So I I think Trump is going to find it very difficult to make the trial into the circus. I I don't think he's going to get to call Nancy Pelosi. I think that to the extent he wants to do any of these flamboyant attention-catching things, um, Judge Chutkin is going to want him to explain how this is an actual plausible defense actually relevant to the particular charges at issue. So, you know, just for instance, in this this theory that, you know, well, actually, I would have called out the National Guard and uh, stopped the riots at the Capitol from happening, but Nancy Pelosi blocked me. Well, how is that really relevant to the issues? I mean, maybe his intent is relevant and he can present evidence that that's what he planned to do. But how does calling Nancy Pelosi actually advance that? So I I don't think Judge Chutkin's going to let her courtroom become the circus. I don't think she's going to allow all of these uh, sort of flamboyant uh, Trump-based pleasing attacks on different figures in government. And part of the, the, the purpose, frankly, may just be to make the demand and have her 
deny it uh, for the propaganda value you get out of that about how I'm not getting a fair trial. Well, I mean, one thing we've seen in the in the New York AG case is that arguments that uh, the judge did not allow them to advance through the introduction of evidence at the trial, you saw them basically advancing by raising objections and by filing appeals. And that was a different circumstance because that's that's a bench trial. So there is no jury to perform for there. And, you know, the Judge Engron was clearly very un, unimpressed with all of that. But so will, will they have an ability to do that in this case where even if Judge Chuck can isn't allowing them to do certain things that they will, you know, they, they can raise hell about it during the, the process of the trial by objecting, by trying to file appeals in the, in the middle of the trial. And certainly that will generate news attention to those issues. Um, I guess they, that's not done in front of the jury generally, or, or some of it would be. Well, you can make objections to evidence in front of the jury, but if you do so in a circus manner, then sooner or later the judge is going to sanction you and put a stop to it. So if I, in the middle of a trial, stand up and speechify my objections instead of just saying objection hearsay, I say objection, this is part of the government's you know, persecution of my innocent client, that type of shit, the judge is going to shut me down and sooner or later I'm going to find myself in custody. But yeah, he can file motions to his heart's content. He can file writs and emergency appeals and things like that to try to shut things down. That's not going to work very well. But as you suggest, it's a matter of driving the news narrative, constantly getting news attention, pandering to his base, that type of thing. I don't think that in Trump's case, it's as much pandering to a jury or looking for a hung jury, at least not in New York or D.C. It seems to me that these strong feelings about Trump are already priced in. So anyone likely to hang a jury is already there for Trump before he gets up to antics in an actual courtroom. This isn't something where a jury is coming in and encountering people they haven't heard of and don't know about, and they have to be swayed or they have to be, you know, uh, convinced through a circus atmosphere. This is all a circus. I think they already know anyone who's going to hang the jury is probably going to hang the jury before the first day they walk into the courtroom. And then another thing that Trump's team wants is for the trial to be televised. And again, you know, it's, it's fine to want things. But my understanding is that that's simply not done. And so I'm, it's not clear to me what the point is of even talking about it. Well, I think the point is, again, to create a discussion over the issue in advance. If you look at his motion to do this, it's all about how this is a show trial. It's being done in darkness and the American people can't see what's happening and they have to see how our former and future president is being abused, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so it's for propaganda value. But you're right. Federal courts generally do not allow cameras in the courtroom. There have been some pilot programs and uh, experiments, uh, but they have not been in criminal jury trials. There's really no mechanism right now to allow it. The rules of federal courts uh, would seem to prohibit it, I think. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any realistic expectation that it could happen. And certainly Chutkin is not somebody who is likely to do it. You know, people have different opinions about whether or not trials and particularly criminal trials should be televised. I would only say that I, I think my observation is that televising it tends to change the behavior of the participants and not necessarily in a good way. I can certainly see all the arguments for, you know, this is a, a public event. It should be accessible to the public to watch. But I think everything from all the way back to the O.J. Simpson trial to more modern trials show that people with cameras on them tend to act out more. Let's talk about 
ballots and whether Trump will even appear on them in November of this year, or in some cases on primary ballots. Uh, we've had more proceedings. We, we talked last time about how in Michigan, the ruling went the opposite direction than it did in Colorado. But this was a matter of Michigan law, that basically the Secretary of State of Michigan doesn't have authority to remove a candidate from the ballot for these reasons. Uh, in Colorado, the courts found differently about Colorado law. Now, the, the Michigan Supreme Court declined to further take up that case. And then in Maine, the Secretary of State, um, who's an official appointed by the governor, in Maine, made a determination that uh, Trump is not qualified to appear on Maine's ballot. And so that process is somewhat different than Colorado, where you didn't have a trial in a court uh, that made that determination. But we're, we're starting to see this split among the states coming down in different directions. And, and Maine, I would note, this is the first state where Trump is probably going to get one electoral vote out of the state. He's won the congressional district in northern Maine, both of the two times that he ran for president. Maine apportions its electoral votes by congressional district. So this is the, this is the first time we're talking about a place where taking him off the ballot is actually uh, likely to have a meaningful impact on the outcome. Yeah. And the Maine Secretary of State held an administrative proceeding, a sort of administrative trial to make this decision. And here, I think the Trump team made a tactical error. They really did not show up very much for it. Uh, they submitted briefs, they made arguments, but they didn't take the opportunity to call witnesses. They presented only very limited evidence and they really just sort of relied on their familiar legal and political arguments. And that means the record uh, is very limited on their behalf, which could have an impact if there are court proceedings attacking this. Courts would normally be inclined to say, look, you had an opportunity to present evidence and you didn't, so we're not hearing it from you now. So the, the Secretary of State determined that she's required and able to make this determination of whether a candidate is eligible uh, for the office that they're running for and therefore whether they should be on the ballot. Uh, my favorite part is that she takes very seriously but rejects <laughs> a kind of trollish argument, which is that Trump says that he was actually elected in 2020. He's actually the president. Therefore, since a president can only serve two terms, he can't be on the ballot. <laughs> I love that argument because it's so trollish. Uh, she takes it deadly seriously and says, no, actually, because uh, the question is whether he's actually president, not whether he has a delusion that he's president. Right. Um, and then she gets to the substance and she says that uh, Article 3 of, of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, meaning it happens, you know, automatically and I'm obligated to recognize it. This was an insurrection that he participated in. Therefore, he is not eligible to be on the ballot. Uh, and Team Trump, of course, has exploded. Trump posted links to the Secretary of State's page with all her numbers and emails and stuff like that. She's been getting death threats and swatting and all this sort of thing that you expect for anyone who crosses Trump. And she kind of acknowledges in her lengthy and, and fairly carefully reasoned opinion that the Supreme Court may render all this moot when it uh, reviews the Colorado uh, Supreme Court. Uh, but she says it's her obligation to, to rule on it. Yeah. So when when is the U.S. Supreme Court going to weigh in on this? Because the Colorado decision has stayed. They When the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump couldn't be on the ballot there, they stayed their decision through this week, through right. January 4. But then they said the stay would extend further if relief was sought in the Supreme Court, which it has been. Uh, so when when's that, uh, that going to get taken up? Well, I think the fact that it's stayed until a particular date probably incentivizes the Supreme Court to decide sooner rather than later whether to take it up. 
Well, no, it's the stay. The stay expires on January four. Then the, the uh, sorry, if if review is sought in the Supreme Court before the stay expires on January four, then the stay shall remain in place. Uh, okay, so yeah, they'll, they'll definitely. Yeah, I, I think the Supreme Court will decide sooner rather than later whether to review, and I think every indication is they will review. Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, <laughs> I thought this was a funny misuse of a, of a community note. Uh, Niraj Agrawal, uh, who's a communications guy at a think tank focused on cryptocurrency, tweets about this news that SBF will not be subject to a second trial. They're not going to... The, the set of charges that because of some wonky extradition issues, they weren't able to try him for in his first trial. There were more charges. The government decided, eh, what's the point? We're not going to have a second SBF trial. And Niraj Agrawal treats, he's going to get away with it. And then there was a community <laughs> note explaining that that he'd been tried and, you know, was, was not getting away with it. Um, <laughs> Very much but, not getting away with it, Josh. <laughs> yes. So Sam Bankman fried uh, they don't, they're not going to bounce the rubble here? They are not. Uh, but in a way, it's a big flex by the prosecutors. And, and I'll explain why. But it, first of all, the issue here was that generally you can only try someone on those charges where the country has agreed to extradite them. So, you know, you can't extradite somebody for a traffic ticket and try them for capital murder. Uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're supposed to only try them under the treaty, uh, all of our treaties for extradition, under the things the other country sent them here for. So DOJ piled on some more charges and then asked the Bahamas to sort of bless those charges, which is something you're allowed to do. The Bahamas have not yet, possibly because of the intervention of uh, SBF's lawyers trying to slow things down, intervene and make arguments and this type of thing. So those charges got split off. And we had his first disastrous for him trial last year. And the idea was we were going to have a second trial on these other charges uh, this spring. So the DOJ has just filed something saying, you know, the Bahamas still hasn't pulled its thumb out of its ass. But you know what? We don't care. <laughs> Let's not do this trial because it doesn't matter because he can get sentenced for all the same shit anyway because of the concept of relevant conduct. So, Josh, in federal sentencing, the concept of relevant conduct is that when the judge is deciding what your sentence is going to be, the judge looks at a pool of facts that is broader than just the particular charges you got convicted of. It's all of the facts of which the judge has evidence. It can even, extremely controversially, even include facts relating to charges on which you were acquitted. So yes, it is possible for you to be convicted of a few counts, acquitted of others, and for the judge to consider the same facts related to the acquitted counts in deciding your sentence. And what DOJ says here is that, you know, we put in all the evidence relevant to these other counts. Uh, the judge can consider them all in sentencing him. It's not going to make a bit of difference in the recommended sentence under the sentencing guidelines. We don't think it's going to make a difference even in what the judge would be inclined in his discretion to give him. So why bother? Why I spend all that public money having this trial, you know, basically you're fucked, boyo. It doesn't really matter whether you have a second <laughs> trial or not. And they're completely right. And it is a disturbing flex that really, it, when you think about it, 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 you've got this big pool of charges, right? And you split half of them off. And you get convicted on the first half. You, you, you have a trial on the second half. You could go to, but the government says, eh, it doesn't matter. We can sentence you just as hard as if you were convicted on those other charges. Well, but I, I mean, 
it wasn't quite a split in half, right? It was some campaign finance stuff that basically got split off. I, I would say that the the core of Sam Bankman frieds bad conduct, the theft of billions of dollars, that was in the real trial. And I, I don't know whether that matters here in terms of whether the, the government got everything in that it needed. But it's, you know, it, it seems like they, they did try him on the most important charges. I mean, certainly the charges with the biggest sentencing oomph. The, the other ones are sort of, you know, adding that traffic ticket on top of the capital murder. But it's just something there's something about the the prosecutor's sort of triumphalism in their letter that rubs me the wrong way just because they're they're gloating over how the system works for them. This is probably better for SBF, right? In that he gets to go live his life in federal prison instead of, you know, being at the MDC or whatever, you know, whatever the process is of having to get in and out of court again. I think opinions differ on that among actual defendants because uh, he's looking at a long stretch and those days go slowly. And sometimes being on trial means you get to go into the courtroom, you get to see things. It's vaguely interesting sometimes. Maybe he gets to testify again and be an asshole in public. Uh, All this (laughs) stuff that's better than, you know, the next 10,000 gray days in a cell. Uh, So I I don't know how you feel about it, but you're right that the conditions tend to be substantially worse while you're in custody awaiting trial than when you're assigned to wherever you're going to be assigned. Speaking of conditions when you're being held in custody, Michael Cohen had (laughs) uh, filed a lawsuit saying that his rights were violated when he, you know, that COVID happened. Michael Cohen had been in prison. They let him out of prison because of trying to reduce the density in prisons with COVID. And then uh, he was, you know, going out and talking a lot to the media about his book. And they said he'd been violating the terms of his release and they took him back into custody. And he filed some lawsuits about that. And I guess an appeals court has said that he's not entitled to any relief. Yes, the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit uh, has affirmed the decision dismissing his case against Trump and Department of Justice and all these other people he said conspired to cause him to be arrested and put back into custody. And this is actually less about Trump and Michael Cohen and more about limits a lot of people don't know about on your ability to sue the federal government. So there is no law that allows you to sue federal employees for violating your constitutional rights. That's kind of a big thing that people don't get. There are laws allowing you to sue state actors. And we've talked before about Section 1983 and how you can sue state actors for violating your rights. But Congress somehow has never gotten around to passing a law saying that you can (laughs) sue feds for violating your constitutional rights. The Supreme Court said uh, 50 years ago in a case called Bivens versus six unnamed federal agents that every right has to have a remedy. And therefore, to the extent federal agents violate your rights, we may imply a right to sue them if there aren't any other remedies. What the court said here basically was, well, there was a remedy. He filed a habeas corpus petition. He won. He was ordered released from custody uh, when he was imprisoned for allegedly violating this this policy about not talking to the media while on home arrest. So he got his remedy. Therefore, Bivens doesn't apply. He can't sue. You know, that's it's kind of weird that you can't sue federal agents for violating your rights and how you can be deprived of the ability to do so, even if they clearly violate your rights, so long as there's something that allows you, you know, here the only remedy was that not that he gets money that he that right. they have to pay. The only remedy is, oh, OK, we'll let him out. Right. That was that was what I was going to ask, because it's, you know, 
ceasing a violation of your constitutional rights, it's not clear to me that's a remedy of the violation. I mean, you still your rights still were violated, or at least your rights were potentially still violated. I mean, if it was a private actor, you would presumably be entitled to damages as well as to an injunction telling them to stop doing it. So how is, you know, Michael Cohen hasn't been made whole if his if his uh, detainment was in fact improper. Well, some people would say being Michael Cohen, the difference between being in solitary for 14 days and being out is uh, de minimis. But uh, Would you want to spend 14 days with Michael Cohen? I would not. Uh, I would not like to spend 14 minutes with Michael Cohen. But uh, yeah, this all goes to how the system is rigged to go into a classic Ken rant. This is all uh-huh. goes to how the system is rigged in ways that most people don't even recognize to prevent you from vindicating your constitutional rights. Congress, it's not like Congress hasn't had time in 250 years to do this. They haven't. They deliberately have not created a mechanism for you to have your rights vindicated if federal actors violate them. There's other Michael Cohen news. Oh, there sure is. There's much more fun Michael Cohen news. Uh, we talked about his adventures with, I guess it wasn't ChatGPT, it was Bard or one of the competitors, but um, he wanted early termination of his supervised release because I guess he's had enough with, with you know, the federal criminal system. And he, they, he filed a brief that cited certain cases and then there was a follow-up brief saying, uh, you know, maybe don't look too hard at those cases. We're not sure those are real. And so now there's been dueling filings by him and his pro bono attorney. This poor guy didn't even get paid for this trouble um, where they were basically blaming each other for the fact that this brief was filed citing fake cases. And it sounds like Michael Cohen is likely to get in more trouble for this than his poor lawyer. I think so. So his his pro bono lawyer, who apparently was a friend, uh, said basically was that a friend, was a friend. Um <laughs> You know, I got sent this brief with these citations. I understood that the source was this other attorney who was working for Michael Cohen, so I trusted it, and I didn't vet it. My bad. Michael Cohen's story is, oh, well, he had no reason to think the attorney had written this. You know, I did it. I went out, and I guess I didn't understand what AI is, so I sent it. And this is all my friend who's doing pro bono work for me. It's his fault for not carefully <laughs> vetting what I, an attorney, produced, yeah. which I think is a deeply humiliating argument to, to have to make. And I do not think the judge will react well. Now, uh, Michael Cohen is no longer a lawyer. He's been disbarred. And when he was a lawyer, he was never the sort of lawyer you go to to get apt case citations. Um, he's the lawyer you was go Michael to. Was Michael Cohen a good lawyer? No, Michael Cohen is a lawyer you get to go threaten to break somebody's knees in order to get a case dismissed, not cite apt cases to get a case dismissed. So um, I think the judge is going to look very dimly on this. I'm not sure if it's going to wind up in sanctions as opposed to just, you know, uh, a harsh and humiliating scolding. I do think that Michael Cohen is not going to get his supervised release terminated early, though. So... (laughs) Can in terms can the, can he extend the supervised release or is it just like he could he could impose monetary sanctions? Um, he could impose monetary sanctions. He could uh, he, he can't extend the supervised release. He could theoretically find Cohen in violation of supervised release and revoke him and put him in custody. But he'd have to go through a process for that, and he hasn't started that yet. So yeah, well, I, that sounds like a lot of work, which might be what Michael Cohen has going for him here. 
let's talk about Mark Meadows. Uh, this was we, we got so busy talking about porn on a recent episode that we didn't have time to talk about Mark Meadows. Uh, Mark Meadows uh, has he's one of so many defendants in the Georgia Rico case, and he's one of a few who tried to get the case removed to federal court. Um, and now he's been denied relief both by a federal trial court and now an appeals court saying you're not a federal employee anymore. And therefore, the statute about removing cases related to federal employees doesn't apply to you. Right. So the 11th Circuit affirmed the uh, federal trial court's rejection of his removal effort. It's been a number of months since this went on. So remember, this is under a statute that allows federal officials to move from state court to federal court, criminal or civil actions against them based on their exercise of their authority as federal officials. Um, And curiously, I think, the argument that wins here is one that a lot of people sort of poo-pooed and, and thought was a weird argument uh, and a sort of just sort of an afterthought argument. And that is that this statute doesn't apply to former federal officers. So uh, it only applies, the, the 11th Circuit says, to people who are currently federal officers. Uh, it's, it's not uh, by its plain language or by its legislative history intended to protect people who used to be. Congress hmm. wanted to do that. They could, but they didn't. Um, the 11th Circuit also focuses on something that we focused a lot more on, that was a lot more of, of, of the argument below. And that is that when you're deciding whether or not you're charged with a crime based on uh, acts in furtherance of your office, the court is supposed to look at the heart of the criminal charge, not the evidence. So put another way here, the charge is that he entered into a conspiracy to defraud, a conspiracy to submit false documents and and uh, undermine a process and that type of thing. The overt acts that were alleged were things like making phone calls or, or sending emails, things that could be in your official capacity. But the 11th Circuit agrees with the lower court that the, the question of whether something is within the scope of your duties as a federal official looks at the heart of the charge, the crime you're accused of, not the things you did that are evidence of that crime. And that makes a big difference uh, for this Georgia RICO case. Uh, the court also says that it wasn't under color of his office because the White House was supposed to have no role in state elections or electioneering or any of that. So all his shenanigans trying to influence the Georgia vote counting and the, and the vo- Georgia vote reporting don't count as something he did uh, on behalf of a legitimate federal office. Finally, this week, before we go, I would be remiss if we did not talk about this high profile firing of a university leader that everybody has been talking about. Uh, Ken, I'm referring, of course, to Joe Gao, the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse, um, who was fired from the chancellorship there uh, because he had a uh, OnlyFans type account with his wife uh, where they did porn online. And apparently the university didn't care for that. And now Joe Gao says, I had a First Amendment right to make this porn and you can't fire me over that. Is that right? Josh, I'm going to say two things here. Number one is yes. apparently this is like vegan themed porn. And, and yes. And, which sounds like something they make me watch in hell. Second of all, that's potentially be- important to the legal analysis, right? <laughs> this became a porn-themed 
podcast so slowly that I didn't even see. <laughs> I didn't even notice it happening. It was the frog in the boiling water. So, yeah. uh, right. So he claims he was fired as chancellor, not as a tenured professor. Uh, and he claims this violated his First Amendment rights for the university to say we're shocked that you have this porn channel where you do have available to the public, uh, you know, porn videos with you and your wife. And the question is, can they do that or is that a violation of his First Amendment rights? So remember that um, the government can wear two different hats, right? One is your sovereign, the person who can put you in jail for breaking a law. The government can't punish him wearing the sovereign hat for porn. That's protected by the First Amendment, unless it's uh, to the level of obscenity, which is a very narrow category. It's not. Uh, so, But the government also has the hat of employer when it's like a state university like this. And there you have much more reduced First Amendment rights, much fewer protections against being fired or disciplined as an employee, as opposed to jailed or punished as a citizen. And some of the questions that get asked in the analysis of whether or not a government actor can fire uh, a government employee uh, include, um, was he doing this in his official capacity on on the job as a job duty or as a private citizen? If he's doing it in his official capacity, then he's not protected. Uh, clearly, he wasn't. It's not a porn-themed school. Uh, he's not teaching a porn course, <laughs> so forth. The next question is, uh, you're only protected by the First Amendment as a government employee if... You're speaking on an issue of public concern. So the question is, is a pornographic video, uh, uh, is a sex tape speaking on an issue of public concern? Now, there's a Supreme Court case in 2004 that says no, uh, that that's not like speaking on a newsworthy issue, which is what public concern means. Uh, he may have an argument that actually my porn is, right. is explicitly about encouraging the beautiful and natural sexuality of slightly older people and of encouraging a vegan lifestyle, which apparently includes porn videos, uh, which explains to me why they talk about it so goddamn much. They, they had videos where they cooked vegan dishes with adult film stars, including uh, Will Pounder, apparently is the name. That's a, yes. a perfectly good name for a porn star, uh, appeared in one of these vegan videos with them. But that, I mean, does this actually matter in the legal analysis? They can say, you know, this is, you know, this is about a, a matter of, you know, a moral question and a lifestyle health question about how people should eat. And we're reaching people about veganism through porn. Therefore, this is a matter of public concern. They can absolutely make that argument. And I think you might be able to plausibly distinguish that 2004 Supreme Court case, which was just a cop in San Diego making porn videos of himself taking off his police uh, uniform and, and masturbating, if memory serves. Uh, so that really wasn't a message-based thing so much. They, they could say this is message-based, therefore it's a matter of public concern. But here's the killer. Remember that when you sue federal actors for violation of their rights, they're protected by the doctrine uh, of qualified immunity. And so you have to show that the right that was violated is clearly established. So mm -hmm. here, because there's this 2004 Supreme Court case saying that no, porn is not a matter of public concern, I think it would be incredibly hard to argue that it was clearly established that these videos were protected speech. So I think he loses on that. Later on, Josh, even if he gets over this hurdle, the government can still say that he loses under a balancing test where you balance his interest, his his First Amendment interest in doing vegan porn against the university's interest in 
effective administration and him being effective at his job. So I think if he was just a professor, that he might win that balance, but he's the chancellor. He's got to interact with, you know, very old donors and alumni and the, you know, the the ancient creatures in the legislature and, and all these constituencies where this can impact his effectiveness as a diplomat and representative. So I think he loses that analysis too, probably. Well, that's too bad for Joe Gao. Although I, I guess I would note on the qualified immunity matter that even if they can't prevail, because the you know the, it was not clearly established that vegan porn addresses a matter of public concern. If Joe Gao sues, and the court finds for him on that matter, that means the next chancellor who's making vegan porn, and a, a, a state government tries to fire that chancellor, then that chancellor might might prevail because then it will be clearly established that vegan pornography addresses a matter of public concern. Exactly, and then after that person sues for getting fired, the government's position is going to be okay, but. This vegan porn was lit slightly differently. So it wasn't clearly established <laughs> we couldn't punish that because that's the way the lawyers for the government actors do it. I think the bottom line is here that of his three jobs, tenured professor, chancellor, and vegan porn actor, he only keeps two. He mm-hmm. loses the chancellor job. I, and I, and I, I leave it as an exercise to our listeners which of those jobs he would prefer to keep. Well, um, listeners, if you're feeling bad for Joe Gao and you want to support him, he's, they are sexy, happy couple on OnlyFans if you want to go look for them for your for your vegan porn needs. Uh, and uh, we, we support all content creators here uh, on this uh, on this podcast. Uh, I, I, Ken, I think that covers it unless you have unless you have another porn related story for us to cover this week. I do not. OK. Uh, Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time.